Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Today we have Al Loveland, the founder of Strabo, to tell us about his four P's, among many other things. Jen, first, good to see you. Hello, good to virtually see you. And welcome, Al. Pleasure to be here. So, I guess, Al, first, tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? How did you find your way into this? Okay, I'm originally from uh, Pennsylvania. I grew up, it's uh, about an hour southwest of Philadelphia. I pretty much spent the first 38 years of my life within about a 25-mile radius. The house I grew up in, I actually bought it when I got out of college. My mom moved upstate. My parents were selling the house, and I, uh, I bought it with my dad. And for about 13 years, we, you know, we lived together in the house. I got married and, and bought a house, and unfortunately, that didn't work out. But then after that, I, I moved back in. My sister, I sold it to my sister so that the house had been there. We've had it since 1973. We're coming up on 50 years of having the house. Wow. I decided to move out here to Arizona. Um, I, I had some friends out here. I worked in Wilmington. I had a staff here in Arizona. I, I had a staff in Delaware. And I just, you know, made a life change back in 2009. And I've been here ever since. So I love the sunshine. A little different than Philly. Oh, yeah. I remember I went home like for a 10-day vacation. It was overcast every day. I said, I'm not coming back to this mess. No way. <laughs> so tell us about Strabo. What... Do you do? Well, my business journey um, started, I worked at, at Morgan Chase for 15 years. I graduated with a history degree and that 60 cents would get me a Coke. It was pretty useless. And um, I was temping for a while. Like my first job out of college, I was making copies. And I can remember falling asleep at night to the sound of the copy machine. Like my job was making pink copies for DuPont. It was a temp service. The second temp job I got was was working at Chase and I was doing things and there would there'd be days where I'd work like 57 hours, 57 days in a row. Um, and then there'd be some weeks I'd get nine hours worth of work. And one week they, they came back and they said, we're going to pay you full time. And I said, you'll give me twelve fifty an hour and with benefits? Where do I sign? So I signed it and I, you know, I, worked, uh, I worked at Chase and I spent 15 years there. I started out as a temporary worker and I worked my way up to managing a, a group of about 90 people. And what our responsibility was, was when we started out in credit cards, you could only have one credit card. So if Jen would apply for a second credit card, they'd decline her because you could only have one. And then at the end, you could have as many as you wanted. And there was just so much credit. We went through the financial crisis. And, and what had happened was, was that um, the organization had um, began to streamline and uh, we had become top heavy and I got let go. And I had worked in the same department with the same people for literally like 15 years. And I then started thinking about what I was going to do next. And I didn't know. And I didn't feel like going home back to Pennsylvania. So I stayed here and I went to get a master's at the University of Phoenix. And um, I was like, when do you have a class? Because when I was competing for jobs, I was competing against people who had, who had MBAs. And, and so I went and I got an MM, a master's of management, and it was wonderful. It was built around consulting. And from that standpoint was I went and I started a career in consulting. And my, my original company was called 21 Days. And I always thought that 21 Days was a time it took you to, to be able to form a habit. And I helped organizations with time management and things. But what I found after a while was, was that uh, I could make people more efficient running in circles, or in some cases, if you had a bad strategy, running off a cliff. So I went back and one of the great things about my community was, was that I was able to, I I sat behind a genius. I sat next to a genius and behind a genius, Sam Pegel and and Mike Jones. 
And um, I went back and I started talking to Mike and he, uh, his company resound as they went back and they started talking about, um, about branding. And he said, how do you want to brand this? And so I went back and I, um, I bought some hours um, of coaching from, from Mike and we went back and we created, we wanted to create something that we felt was more powerful than 21 days. And that's where Strawbow was born. And that's one great thing I want to kind of give a prop here about Mac 6 is that when you work here, it's a workspace where you're not just sitting at a desk, you're working around a lot of smart people. And it really kind of helps, you know, grow your business and also grow you with all the different things that are, that are available here. So, um, Mike and I started having a conversation and we started going through and really what I was doing with, with organizations was, was guiding them from where they were to where they wanted to be. And so my history degree, I went back and I said, what was a great historical guide? And I went back and I, and I found, um, I went back and I Googled famous guides and there he was, Strabo. He was um, born around the time of the, of the Roman Republic. And what he did was he went around and he mapped out the Mediterranean world. And so he was kind of an adventurer, a philosopher, and he went around and he created maps for people. And that's one thing I think with organizations is, is they have to have a map between what their strategy is and their end results. And that's where, you know, Mike and I came up with navigating your journey confidently. And that's like the point of like where, where my focus right now with Strabo is really getting strategic revol- results and helping with leadership. So I've got to tell you a quick story as you were talking about the the copying, that first initial job, making all the copies. And one of my very first jobs, uh, I must have been 13 or 14 or 15, some sometime in there. And my dad's company at the time, Macintosh Engineering, they were publishing a book called the Hard Rock Miner's Handbook, which became globally known as the book about hard rock underground mining. And they decided to self-publish which meant that they needed someone, got two fingers pointed at me, uh, to make 80,000 copies of this entire book for an entire summer. And I learned a lot about patience and hitting a copier with a two by four and uh, all kinds of things. But it was a, it was a great learning experience. Yeah, I can remember, um, I can, the Phillies were in the World Series and in 93. And I can remember after watching a game, closing my eyes and hearing the sound of that copier that you probably wouldn't have to fall asleep to. It was the sound in my head. Yep. Tell me about your four Ps. Okay. The, the, the four Ps are really when you start talking about your strategic results. Um, a lot of times I work with a lot of small organizations that as you begin to grow, you need to have, like if you think about a small business as one person and you start going to two, three, four, you have to be able to have the first P is your position. You have to have the right people. You have to have the right processes and you have to have the right performance. And what I do is I sit down with organizations and I go back and I say, what's your strategy? That's the first key thing is having that strategic plan or your business plan. And then what kind of results are you going to get? And then we go back and we break down an FT that's a full-time equivalent. And it's like, how much work do you have going through and then how much time do you need to be able to get that work done? And that's a lot of math. There's a lot of conversations. And that builds the assumptions for the organization. And what really happens at, you know, with small businesses is, is that cash flow is a challenge. And you know, sometimes going out and paying somebody fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year to kind of have a, a position to be able to pay somebody without right cash flow, after a while you might not have money to be able to do that. 
So there's different ideas, there's different ways to consult, there's different companies that can kind of help you with different things. So it's really getting that strategy about how you're getting the work done. But all four of those things flow seamlessly together in order to get that right kind of performance that you're looking for. So Al, I have a question for you. Um, As you're taking on a new client, um, are you doing any analysis of they they come to you um, and they say, here's my strategy. And what I know from small business and the work that I do is a lot of companies think they have a strategy, but they might not actually have a strategy. So do you do any analysis of the strategy, you know, so people aren't running in circles more efficiently or, or how do you kind of help people make sure that they do have an effective strategy? The one thing I was blessed with at, at the University of, University of Phoenix, I was able to have a college professor, a mentor, Scott Romeo, who was uh, on a podcast with Karen and I a few weeks ago. He is a strategy expert. And the one thing in his two books that I have read is going back and understanding what your objectives are. Because a lot of times people have a lot of goals and they have these aspirations. And the one thing I like to say is that hope is not a strategy. And so, (laughs) you know, a lot of cases it's, you know, what are your actions, behaviors, what's your timeline and what's your desired outcomes? And so I I go back and I have those conversations with um, the business owners and we go down and one of these great boards that we have here if you're looking online, you can see that that that's that, that circle behind us. And you sit down and you say, okay, let's go through and let's talk about this. How many hours is, is this going to take? And and Jen, you've been through one of my workshops with this, where I first I, I go through with them is what I call 168 management. Mm-hmm. And it's a workshop that I have is that, you know, again, with with small business entrepreneurs, you know, you have um, you have your business to run, but then you also have your families to raise, communities to serve, all while maintaining your emotional, spiritual, and physical health. And when I sit down with them, I go back and I say, what are your goals, not only in business, but also in life? And that kind of gets back that number of hours that you want to kind of work through your system because a lot of small business owners work themselves to death. Nonprofits work themselves to death. A lot of small organizations have these big ambitions, but they don't understand, you know, if your strategy works and what happens if it works better than what you um, anticipate it. And so what we go back and we really lay out and I say, you know, how do you, create your assumptions in the, in the near and long term? And then how do you build that infrastructure to be able to work that? Yeah, I think when, when Al and I went through that exercise with you, it was it was eye-opening because you have, like no matter how you slice and dice your week, you have 168 hours. And when I did the exercise, I think I had my time booked at what, 205 hours or That's something? That's right, yeah. And so, you know, that was very clear of like, oh, we, Houston, we have a problem. No wonder I'm always feeling overwhelmed and and overworked. Um, and also when we did it with our organization, you know, we, we allocated here, we think we should be spending X number of hours in, in these different areas. And then when you come back and you look at the results of, okay, what did we actually do? And I think that was a really impactful thing, um, is when you compare your actuals, cause you think you're doing one thing and then you realize, Oh, well, we spent so much more time in this, in this bucket than we had allotted. Um, what are like some big, if you see any patterns with the companies you work with, like what are the time wasters or where, where is the, the time? Where can people um, make up time? The number one thing is working on things that actually work. A lot of times people do things that they've done for a while. And it's like, why are you doing that now? One of my favorite sayings is Peter Drucker. Is a, I'm a big advocate of his. And he said, the things that work for you yesterday aren't going to work tomorrow. In a lot of cases, organizations do things because they've done them for the entire time they've been in business, but the world changes. And so really kind of going back and saying, how is this stuff you're working on now add value? And so 
one of the terms I like to have is you go back and you prune the tree and you prune off the things that are no longer adding value. And so, you know, sometimes there's things in your personal life or there's some things that you have professionally or there's a, a function that's no longer useful. The second thing is, is that when and, and how are you doing it? The one thing I do with organizations, and especially people, is when's your most productive time? So let me ask you, Jen and Kyle, um, when are you most productive? Morning, evening, afternoon, after night, or something along those lines? Evening. Definitely mornings. Yeah. So it's like sometimes when you go back and you look at productivity is, is that you might go back and try to work on something. And, you know, like one of my favorite Rodney Dangerfield jokes is he said it took him two hours to watch 60 Minutes, right? Well, that's only, I thought that used to be funny until you were somebody who was paying somebody time and a half for that second hour to get work done. You know, it's, a, it's not that funny after a while. So you really kind of understand what performance is. Finally, the thing that I'd say is that when you go back and you look at what the time is, you have to make the choices of what you can do with the time. Because sometimes to Jen's point is that people try to do too much. And what happens is, is that you spend a lot of time working on things you never complete. And, you know, one of the things is that I, I always go back to people and I say, if you walked in one day and you saw your staff playing 500 Rummy, that's an honor of my mom. She's listening. That's one of her favorite games. And you'd say, what are you doing playing cards? I'm paying you money to get work done. Well, if you take all the time of things that you don't complete, it's not adding value. It's waste of time. And so you really have to have that strategy of saying, we're going to get this completed. And what kind of value is it going to bring afterwards? Because if you think about all the things that you work on and, you know, we start at this, we spent a couple hours, something else came in and you don't complete it. Well, that time was then wasted. How do you get a company aligned around being on the same page for what performance means? And one person might be really interested in uh, new product development, but maybe that goes nowhere and somebody's being the hard driving results. Uh, how do you get a company aligned around that? I see you got a cup there, right? Yes. What do you have in it? Uh, it is a energy drink. An energy drink. Okay. Like I always go back and I ask people, I'll say, do you like Coke or Pepsi? And there's a lot of people who say, I don't like cola at all. And I say, okay, well, what do you like to drink? And and for argument's sake, Jen might say, I like Coke, and Kyle might say, I like Pepsi. And you might debate that for a while. And the question is, who's right? Well, again, we know Jen's right. But, uh, <laughs> but outside with, but with other people is, is that both are right because it's, because it's your tastes. And when you're an organization, you can't have taste. You have to have an agreed viewpoint of what is the understood part of the strategy. And so when you sit down and you say, these are the actions and behaviors that we're going to do that are going to lead to these desired outcomes. And when you're going through that strategic planning piece, it's that you understand what your role and responsibility is. And when you have those meetings and you understand like the, why kind of have those two P's are so interlinked between the, the person and the position. If you have the right position and saying, these are the goals for the position, these are the outcomes that we're looking for. And then it's important too to lay out is that there's this three-step process that I do with clients is to say is that did the person follow the action behaviors as designed? I mean, how many times do you have people to say, did you get that stuff done right? Well, no, I didn't really do that today. Or, you know, I got really busy and I didn't get to it. Or I felt I should do this a little bit differently. That's, that's all fine. But like, this is what we agreed to. And so like the first thing is as a, as a leader or an owner was, was my strategy followed as designed? The second piece of that is after you follow that, that, that process, did it work? 
Because in a lot of cases, if, you know, we, we have Karen and say, Karen, I want you to go do A, B, and C. And she does A, B, and C, and it doesn't work. Well, then Karen, it's your fault. And we say, wait a second, you know, I was doing what you told me to do, you know, because there's, there's that piece there. And, I, and this gets to what your answer is, is that a lot of times there has to be a clear delineation is, it's my responsibility to get the work done as you laid out. But if Jen sets the strategy, she can't turn around and blame me for doing what she told me to do when it doesn't work. And so it really has to build, it's that trust that you have to build within the organization. And then finally, too, it's a culture of results and a culture of continuous improvement. And that's what I like to have is that you work on getting your strategic results, but then also leadership. And it's really working together to understand is that this is not a blame culture. This is a results culture. And it's really going back and saying, what happened? Why did it happen? How do we get better? Because, you know, when you have people that like to blame and pick on people, and I love to kind of bring the best out of people and find, like, one of my favorite quotes is that, you know, I, th- I think it was Da Vinci that says, you see a block of granite, you know, I see a beautiful sculpture in there. And I think the great leaders see where people fit in their organization and help them um, realize their potential. And that's one of the beauty things of that. But you really had to have, have to have that leadership that goes back and shares what that vision is and then motivates people to be able to, to reach it. I really like that, you know, you're cultivating not a blame culture, um, but a culture of results. So talk to me a little bit more about like, practically, how does that happen? And what do you recommend for clients? Is it like a weekly review? Is it? I think that there's, there's a ton of, there's a ton of literature about that, but it's really, it's really like, what did you expect to happen? And what happened? And then having the conversation about why. Um, I think a lot of times people, um, they are always worrying about what's next. Um, the one thing, the bane of my existence right now are, are computer models, right? Because computer models are only as good as the information that's put into it. So they, we always think about what's going to happen in the future, but we don't go back and look to see what happened back yesterday. And what I really like to have is to create a, a business review for organizations that, that says, what did we do today? You know, what did we do over the past three weeks? And did we say what we were going to do? And have a conversation about why. And because, you know, sometimes here, you know, recently, like with COVID and things like that, a lot of plans that have been, that were hatched in January now have been blown up afterwards and you, and you have to kind of pivot. But in, in a regular business environment is, is that you might have, you know, your action behaviors and, and did we do them? But then going back and saying, okay, the actions and behaviors we did back in February, did they bear the fruit as we thought that they were? Because organizations, to your point before about waste of time is, if they're not bearing fruits, why not? And what changes are we making? And so it's really creating that culture of having a conversation about results and say, why isn't this working? And then, and then the other part is, is for the things that happened before. Um, actually, if you remember, um, we were at a, a Tempe Chamber event where someone talked about like uh, being a gardener and he went back and he saw on his tomato plants that it took 120 days for the fruits to materialize. You know, and, and how many times as business owners do you go out and you start something, you say, okay, where's the tomato, right? Yep. And you go out and say, well, after two weeks, I'm getting impatient. You know, it's like, it takes a while for it to be able to blossom. And you have to be able to sit back and say, we did these things. Now we should start seeing results in the future. And it's really being aligned and being patient and being on the same page. I have a curious question I've been thinking about for 20 and a half minutes as you've been talking. When you talk about results and they're quantifiable, did this happen or not? Did we hit certain milestones? Can we look back in the past and see if we accomplished our objectives? It's very uh, 
it, there's a practical nature to driving performance as one of the goals here with the business. How much do you see that being the driving force of why somebody works with you versus I could see a really emotional appeal to this 168 hours. Oh, I get to think about my whole life as a business person and really feel good about where I'm spending my time and feel like I'm being a productive human being and purposeful. And maybe they're one in the same thing or intertwined. Running a business is, is a, you know, one of my favorite um, sayings is that um, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And I listened to a podcast once of uh, Alan Weiss, who's a consultant. He said, don't think about it that way. Think about it as a series of sprints. And also, too, is, you know, a lot of us, as I get more and more gray hair and, and go back and look over life and the decades and things, is that you go through the different seasons of life. And especially, um, you know, working with a lot of women in business and, and working with nonprofits, uh, especially is, is that you have people that have children, um, you know, dads have kids too, and you've got to go back and you, and you have those different responsibilities. And you really have to go back and say, you know, what are my goals professionally and personally, and also from my health and wellness standpoint? And how do I go about weaving that in with my business? And then, um, I went back and I asked a question one time and someone said, I would never pay $75 to have someone clean my house. It's, it's my time. It's my money. It's, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of, you know, I've got the time I can do that. And I went back and I said, would you spend $75 to go see your daughter's dance recital? Hmm. And they said, absolutely. And in a lot of cases is that when you begin to get busy and when that time begins to tap out, you know, when your kids have to go out and, you know, they they have a, a baseball league or they're, they're out playing an instrument or they're doing a lot of things in school, you don't get more time. And so it's really going back and it's really kind of understanding where that time is being spent. And that's what I was saying before is it's the high Im impact value that you're bringing to your organization. And to your question about like working with clients is, is it's really going back to say what's working, what's not working and let's start doing things that are working because sometimes things don't work. And back to that time waster that Jen was saying before is, is that you're always looking at those pieces and saying, is this working or is it not? And is there something else better? Because at the end of the day is that you're in business to make money. And if you don't have enough money flowing through and have the cash flow, then you're in big trouble. It's an interesting, you brought up the people that are in our space. Thank you for the plug. And it's one of the hardest things to sell uh, because people are looking for the attributes or per square foot or looking for a space to put my company. But how do we describe the value of this business community that's here? And Yeah, I think, um, you know, for those that's sometimes the mantra is given or what, but I'm also the mayor of Max 6. Yes, you are. And uh, you're able to kind of go around and have conversations and be able to to work with people. And and one of the joys is that, you know, Max 6 is, is, is a place for people, people. You know, it's like, I love people. I love to have conversations. And you learn from the people that are around you because people have passions and they are, they're able to kind of give you those thoughts and insights and the conversations and the camaraderie that are built. And, you know, just yesterday, I had four conversations with people that gave me different insights that, that, that helps me with my clients. And in a lot of cases, when you're in a workspace is that you're not in, in here coming in and working by yourself, but you're having conversations with people. Like I know when I first start doing my business, I know that Jen gets worried about me every day because another thing from Max 6 is that I actually jaywalk across the street. So hopefully no police are listening to this. 
And, uh, you know, I cross six, six lanes of highway. I stand in the middle of the highway and I look both ways. It's very safe. I haven't gotten hit yet, but, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's something that I used to, I used to be by myself. Yeah. Knock on wood. Hopefully I used to work by myself and and being a bachelor, you know, you, that's all, sometimes you're by yourself all the time. And sometimes, you know, as an entrepreneur, um, being able to kind of go back and have that, that personal interaction with people is a great thing. And, I think too, it's like when you're able to bounce your ideas off of somebody and then you're able to collaborate and you're able to kind of, um, you know, have a question and say, let, 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 let me ask you this insight. And, you know, even like the community lunches that we used to have, um, the great uh, the great series that Jen had back in the springtime, the, the ability to kind of be here and talk to Karen and and be on this uh, this podcast radio show, it's, it's a great thing. And, and it's things that I can't do when I'm sitting by myself. When you're in a workspace, it's the ability to kind of have work and it's ability to have a conference room. It's ability to build clients. And it's like, it's rather than saying, hey, come in and sit in my dirty kitchen, you know, for a little while versus coming into a nice place here. But then it's also the people because the people really drive this place. And that's the thing is that, and then one final thing was that, you know, we had the great thrill of our uh, our kickball season, you know, and it's like, you know, you had a, uh, and the one thing about that, they said, do you want to play kickball? And I'm like, I don't want to play kickball. You know, I'm <laughs> nearly 50 years old. I can hurt myself. And, and I went back and I, um, I went back and I was like, let me, I went back and did it. And it was the most fun I probably had in decades. And it was just a tremendous, um, a tremendous uh, time. But like the relationships that were built, you know, with people and then the connections that you had, and then it really helps you come back. And, and that's what I really think that the benefit of this, um, of this workspace is it's the quality of people. It's that business interaction. And then also, I've been able to um, get some business out of it as well. So it's like, it's, it's been a win, win, win across the board. And I get to talk to Jen too. So it's, that, that, that's the additional bonus. But it definitely is a bonus. That's, it's interesting oh. that, I mean, similar, not dissimilar to many of the things you're talking <laughs> about for your business. People need interaction with other people, the kickball. We see people coming in, uh, often to our co-working space who I would say come in as an entrepreneur and at some point figure out how to be a business person when they get that cash flow thing you were talking about. And there's a lot of similarities between all these people, but what you're speaking to is this collective wisdom that we get to share with each other, which I think is really valuable. Absolutely. And even like from the standpoint is that we have the fun of kickball we won't talk about your fantasy football team last year and the, and, no, we won't. And, the, and the results that you had in that, but you know, it's, it, you know, it's fun. And that's like the one thing that, that I think really began to cement me, cement me into this is when I joined that league and, and it's just fun. And it's like, when you get around good people and you build that camaraderie is that, you know, work is work. But that was like the one thing that I really missed was like my chase friends was the people that I went in and work every day. And that was such a wonderful time. And here it's, it's really been a great thing that's kind of helped not only the, the quality of my business, but also the quality of my life. So I have a question that I've been wondering for the last 20 or 30 minutes that we've been on. It's changing the subject a bit, but I, one of the things that I really appreciate about our conversations, Al, is since you are such a student of history, you always have a story to tell me. You always can reference back um, to something in history. And I think I've always appreciated your viewpoint and your your insights because you're able to pull back a little bit wider than the current moment and you have some more context than probably the rest of us who aren't quite as up on in history. 
So just from like a philosophical standpoint, do you think leaders are born or are they built? That's a great question. I think that um, it depends on the era. Um, I think we've talked before, you know, when you go back and you you look at people, I, th- I think they're formed um, by their eras and they're, they're formed by the situation that they're in and they're also formed by the opportunity that they have. I think a lot of time with leadership is, is that you have to, you know, have that uh, ability to, I remember, I'll go back to a conversation that I had once. I was back in 2005, I was getting ready to go on this long vacation and I had one of my managers come back in and she said, I have to talk to you. And I said, okay, let's go in a conference room. And we sat down and she looked at me and she began to tear up and she said, I can't do this. I can't sleep at night. I can't, I just can't do this. And I can't, I'm going to have to fire somebody that they're going to lose their job. And I'm going to be responsible for that. And I just can't do this. And I went back and I learned from it that day was that all people aren't aren't um, really born to be able to have that responsibility and accountability. You've got to have a certain amount of stomach for that. Um, I think the second thing is, is that, you know, with people, they want to go back and they want to say, I want to have responsibility for this. I want to be able to do this and I want to be able to do that. And they say, okay. And one of my favorite stories is the story of the Sword of Damocles, where like the king goes back and he says, um, you going to be king for the day? He goes, absolutely. So he comes in and you know, he, he's able to kind of go back and boss people around. He's have a sumptuous lunch. He's there getting fed grapes by, by the harem. And then all of a sudden, he turns ashen white. And he says, um, why is that sword above my head? And he goes back and the king says, oh, it goes, oh, that's responsibility. You know, like if the economy goes bad, if we're attacked or somebody wants to come back and get power, I'm the one on the line. That happens every day. And he said, do you still want to be king? And he said, nope. And he got up and he ran out of there. And so I think that the third part of this is that, that but that, but then that only takes you so far. And then you have certain leaders, you know, that the before that used to be able to tell people to do A, B, and C. And, you know, that, that may have worked before, but now that we get into this, to this third decade of the 21st century is, is that we have a highly diverse um, workforce. We have um, multi-generational pieces. And I think that the, the one thing is that you really have to build your tool chest. And that's one thing that, that, Jen, that Jen does a great job with her, her programs here at Max 6 is, is that she teaches people how to think differently and how to have different pitches. And I think right now with leadership is, is if you think about leadership in the past, and I know use a baseball analogy, is, is that a kid might have a 100-mile-an-hour fastball that he might blow people away. And then when you get to the major leagues, major league hitters can hit that. You've got to have different pitches. You've got to have different things in your arsenal. And I think today is, is that leaders have to be trained to understand empathy, to understand diversity, to understand how people think and why they think. And so I think, Jen, it's a, a long answer to that is that it's a blend of being able to have those innate abilities in you to be able to handle the things. But then you sprinkle those in with education that you're able to learn about how to manage. And then finally, I think the final thing is being a team player. Um, you know, one it's the thing is I love to say it's that it's a we thing, not a me thing, and that you go back and you build that player in there that, that can make a decision. But ultimately that I think the ultimate thing is that that stomach um to be able to make the call. But I will add one final thing from a leadership standpoint. It's that term that I love, it's called intellectual vision. That you're able to see it in your mind and you're able to vision it out. And it's like, if you go back and you think about the beautiful music that, that, that like Beethoven and things make that like his symphony number, number nine, he made when he was deaf. 
he thought about that whole thing in his mind about how he thought it would, um, how it would sound, and he never heard it. But it's one of the best pieces of music that you'll ever listen to. And great leaders are able to see the future, act on it, and then get people motivated, and you're able to use all those skills. So I know it's a long-winded response, Jen, but I hope that covered everything. No, I like it a lot. I, I really appreciate all of that. And I, I tend to agree with you that leaders can definitely be made and are molded by their, their circumstance and education and experience and all of those things. What have you seen when you're working with small businesses or, or, or leaders in general? Like, have you seen anything that, because you need to get your people inspired, right? And you need to give them confidence in their vision. But like, how, what are some things or traits or characteristics of leaders that really um, empower, I don't know what the right word is, empower, inspire, activate their employees? What are the qualities? Of One of the big things is that you have to, a lot with small, small organizations, is that, is that you have to make good people, you can't go hire them. Like in a Fortune 500 company, you can go down, you've got 135,000 that go out and hire you know, some of the best and brightest out of the schools. In small business, especially nonprofits, is, is that you bring people in and you have to be able to kind of see what their skill set is and, and, and then to marry them with the task back to the back to the four P's, getting the people in the positions together. You have to be able to kind of understand where that person would be of a great fit within your organization. Um, sometimes if you get a great person and then two is you have to, you have to understand is that um, people have ambitions to be able to move forward in life. And sometimes you can't promote everybody. And so you have to create a strong process. I, I call this institutional knowledge that you're able to kind of bring somebody in for two years, be able to help them grow, but then it's time for them to be able to move on. But then you got to have the process in place to be able to have that next person come in and, and then you build that camaraderie. And I think one of the key things is that you're able to really kind of understand how each cog fits within your organization and then to understand, you know, what your assumptions are because your assumptions are built for your decisions for the future. So again, if you have, you know, a person and then, the work gets to 40, 45, 50 hours. You have to be able to know when to pull that trigger and when to make the decisions. You know, it's like decisions made versus decisions delayed. And so like in a lot of cases, you've got to be able to anticipate those things that are happening. And you've got to have that time to really strategically think about that. And that's one thing that I find with, with business leaders is they get so busy, they don't have time to do that. And that's the one thing at Strava we want to do is to be able to kind of help them with that and to help them see where they're going and then have that conversation with them. Because the other thing that, you know, being a small business and an entrepreneur especially is a lonely business. An executive director in a nonprofit is a lonely business. Because, you know, you think about an executive director in a nonprofit is, is that they are the boss of everybody else and their bosses are the board. There's nobody that they can really go back and talk to. And so it's a lonely position. And that's one thing I love when I work with nonprofits was to be able to kind of have that conversation to be a sounding board for them. And then as a small business owner, the other thing is that, you know, one of my favorite sayings is, is you don't know what you don't know. And sometimes what you know isn't so. <laughs> and so like at, at some point, you know, like you're passionate about your, about your job and you're passionate about your product. But at a certain point, as you begin to grow, you grow outside of what you're able, you grow outside what outside of what you know, and then you're able to really kind of get that help that, you know, the, those classes and those things that, you know, especially that Max Six is trying to do with the Leadership Academy is, is that there's people that need that skill set. And there's time within your organization that you're able to, you know, take some of your people who are, you know, that next level that they have to get, 
they have to grow to that next level because you want to reward people on the inside, but they need the tools. And that's the one thing that, that the Leadership Academy can get different people, you know, throughout the Valley to, to be able to go out and do that. It's interesting. How do you, I guess the goal would be to promote from within, to grow these people that are in our organizations, to grow their leadership capabilities. But how do you know for, as an organization uh, when someone isn't the person who is going to be able to fire somebody when appropriate and when to bring in this next full-time person or these new capabilities? Different. Um, your body has a lot of muscles. As you get older, you figure out that sometimes when those muscles aren't work, they let you know. Like I remember like in kickball, um, you know, Karen uh, um, here, I used to beat her in a 50-yard dash all the time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like, and um, anyway, I, I thought I was in shape being able to run back and forth. And, you know, one day after playing kickball and running around like the second day afterwards, I literally had both of my, I had both of my quads like literally tightened up on me and I could not move. It felt like someone was stabbing me in my um in my leg. And, you know, the other great thing about Max Six, you got Scott Marsh downstairs is able to kind of go down and give me a plan. And boy, I tell you, when he was rolling those knots out of my leg, I felt like somebody was stabbing. It was the worst pain in my life. But like, um, or one of the worst pains in my life. But anyway, it was, my point with that is, is that when you start to do something different, you don't know what muscles you need to be able to get there. And in, in an organization is you have to be able to anticipate the different things that are needed when you go to the next level. You know, think about like in, in a lot of positions where somebody's phenomenal at being a salesperson, but then you put in a management job and they fall flat on their face because they don't have the skill set in that new job. They don't have developed those muscles yet. They don't have that, they talk about IQ, but the emotional intelligence to be able to deal with people. And that's a learned behavior. And you really have to go back and have that conversation with somebody to say, as we begin to expand, what kind of skill set does this person have? And like the first question is, is that you know, you can go back and look at somebody and say, I don't think all the book technology in the world is going to be able to help this person. But then they might, might say, yes, with a little bit of help, they can do it. And I think it's that great blend of you having the conversation with them. You know, one-on-ones are so key because you're able to talk aspirationally about what you want to do and how you want to go, go about doing that. And then when those two things are able to hit, then you're able to grow because an organization can't grow unless it has great people. Who would you consider a couple of great leaders? Business-wise or? I am interested in anything you've got. So even if uh, everything seems to turn to analogous to business, uh, if it's historically or business or. One of my favorite leaders, of course, is Abraham Lincoln. Um, there's a great book that he has where he went back each time. And if you ever want to read the, the beautiful written word, was that he was able to adapt and change and set the vision for the country, you know, as he went through the Civil War, um, you know, from his first inaugural address to his, to his second inaugural address to the second um, his speech to Congress, you know, where he went back and said, our problems are anew, so we must think anew. And he changed the mindset. And then, of course, the Gettysburg Address is, you know, one of the best um, pieces of the written word that you'll ever go back and read four score and seven years ago. I won't say it here because we have some time left, but... You know, but from the standpoint was that he was able to go back and see about how to be able to go back and, and win the war. And then the other thing is that, you know, with Lincoln was there was a lot of tough times during the Civil War. And there was a, a lot of things where, you know, he, he could have sued for peace or quit or, or done things. And he just took it like th there was a, a battle called Chancellorsville where the Union Army just got destroyed. And he got the um, 
he got the the news back from the telegraph room, and I'll, and I'll never forget reading this, was that he went by and he just would hand up and he said, my God, what will the country think? And he was accountable and he took it. You know, I, I think another one, you know, to go back to my further history back is I love um, Augustus Caesar, who went from Octavian to Augustus. And, you know, from the standpoint was that he was able to make changes. And one of the great things about him was, was, you know, what was the difference between him and his great uncle Julius, where Julius went back and, you know, he got stabbed on the Ides of March and Augustus, you know, served for 40 years and, you know, died a, the father of his country was, was that he was able to do things in a way that did not make people feel bad about themselves. And so he went back and he was able to work through people to get things that he wanted done in a non-threatening way later on. And I think for great business leaders is, is that just in general is, is that they, I think especially today is that they really have to know, understand and how to motivate people. And I think the key thing is that, you know, you can be as, as great as you want to be, but like you can't be a jerk anymore. And I don't think that the times today that there's any place for that. And I think that the people that are able to motivate, I think kindness, I, I wrote a series of article once about being kind, understanding, tolerant, you know, responsible, and also accountable. And to be able to kind of have leaders, leaders that are able to kind of go out and do that and to make people feel good but also have that accountability. And I'm trying to think of a business leader that I love. And a consultant wise, it would be Peter Drucker. I know that I go back and I just read all his different things. And, and he's been gone now for nearly 15 years and everything that he says is spot on. You know, I think from the standpoint for me, it's not, you know, it's the results you get, but why the results you get and what kind of values that you have. Oh, another thing that I, I love about you is you do have, you have like this yin and yang side, this really great balance of, your estimation is leaders need to be kind and understand people and motivate people, but you also very much believe in this other side, this accountability side and this results driven. And, and that's so powerful for me because um, what I see sometimes is leaders tend to go really heavy on one side or the other. And this actually is a question from a live listener. Um, and so we talk a lot about conscious capitalism here at Max 6, and that really is building a business that's more than just profit. It's, you know, what is your purpose? And we talk a lot about that, but what we've found sometimes is even within the um, capitalism community is people tend to go too far on one side on all purpose and not focus on profit or too far on the profit side and not focus on the purpose. So we talk a lot about that intersection and what that means for business. And and what are your thoughts around the um, unification of profit and purpose? I think, um, I think from the standpoint, it's too, um, the first one is, is that I'm always got it in my management um, process. Um, there's a parable from the Bible about the, about the gardener where the owner comes out and says, this tree's not bearing fruit, cut it down. And the gardener went back and said, well, wait a second, let me give some time. Let me give it time to, to manure, water, I'll care for it. But after a year, if it doesn't bear fruit, then I'll cut it down. And I think from the standpoint is, is that I've always taken that in, into my managing and coaching standpoint is that I give it a, a defined amount of time. I give them my best chance to go back and understand what they have to do to give them the skill set to be able to do it. But at a certain point, they have to do it. And at that point is, is because, you know, again, money doesn't grow on trees and you have to perform. And at the end of the day, you've got to do it. And I've given you the best chance and I think from the standpoint too, as I always say that when you go back and you go through the performance management steps with people, 
that when you go back and you coach and you write those things down and people understand it, then you're also able to flip that and say, I have given you every opportunity to succeed and you haven't. And it's, and sometimes I, I had a story once at Chase where somebody came back and she gave her two weeks at the end of the process. And she said, Al, I want to talk to you. And those that have managed people before, you're like, um, oh my goodness, I'm going to get chewed out today, but I got to go back and take it because that's part of being a leader. She came back in and she sat down and she said, you know what? I want to thank you. And she said, you guys gave me every opportunity to succeed. And what I learned was with this job was not for me. And so I got another one. But you treated me with dignity and respect. And at the end of the day, I couldn't do this job the way that you wanted me to. I think the second thing is like with, um, you know, with purposes is that um, one of the big misnomers today is profit. You need money to be able to reinvest in companies, hire new people, buy product. If you don't have profit, you can't stay in business. But I think from the standpoint, it's how you go about doing that profit. And it's what kind of person are you and what are you trying to build? And, you know, I read one, you know, book about Andrew Carnegie. I, I read his biography. I was, I was interested about that, about how he gave back to this community. He, you know, he built hospitals and things. And it's, and it's the caring nature that you have. And I think, you know, it's the, it, it's that capitalism for a force for good is because you first have to, again, the Peter Drucker thing is that you first have to do good before you can be good. You know, you're, you have to create that value to be able to go back and share in the organization. And I think that value s- structure of going back and, and two is like, you know, we're talking about the kindness and being able to help people is, is that one of the things that drove me crazy when I worked at Chase, and I got in some trouble for this because I really, it made me angry, was when people demean people because they had to go home, they had to live with themselves, they had to look at, at themselves in the mirror the quality with what you teach people and how you help them rise really says a lot about you as a person and, and an organization. So how you treat people and, and how they see themselves is so important. And when you're part of an organization that demeans people or makes them feel bad about themselves, it's really not something that you um, want to do. And then I think you do that individually with people, but then also in organizations where you can kind of fill in and help out and really kind of solve an issue that's out there. And again, you can't do everything, but you can do one thing. And, you know, from from organizations that would go out, because you have to have a strong, vibrant society around you to be able to succeed. And I think that's what conscious capital does, because capital is only as good as the people that are doing it. And I think when you have good people, you have a great great political and um, economy. Anything is only as good as the people who are doing it. It's uh, there's a quote that floats around conscious capitalism, and I'm not sure who to attribute it to, but uh, it's the the human body and and blood and the relationship, and the human body creates blood, but it's not the purpose of the human body to create blood and a business and cash and and profit, and it's it needs the cash and the profit to to survive, but it's not the purpose of the business to create cash and profit. And so it's when those two things we can, you know, endlessly debate sometimes about which comes first, which is more important. Could you only focus on one if the other was doing well? But I think it really is those two things hand in hand, uh, the purpose and the profit and what you're doing with it, which really comes down to the word you said, value that you're creating for people and for the world. Uh, becomes this, that is your success. The, the money is just a yardstick to measure how well you're doing creating value for others. I completely agree. And we just have a few more minutes, but I, have, I still have like a long list of questions, but I'm trying to pare it down to just a few. 
So changing the topic a little bit, but through this pandemic um, that we've all been experiencing for the last several months, what would you say your key takeaways or learnings have been as a result of what we've been experiencing? You know, it's back to the to the three things that I said before is that what are your actions, behaviors, how are your things working, but then also a change in the environment. This COVID has changed the environment and it's really the need to be flexible and to really kind of understand, you know, what's happening, what's my strategy, what things do I have to change and what decisions do I have to make? And I think organizations have to be able to see that and then to really grow and adapt. And I think one of the key things about this COVID piece is, is that we're still in it and we still have to make decisions and we have to see what assumptions we have and what changes we need to make off of that. So it's having time to talk about those things and then make those split decisions because sometimes, you know, the world's going to change and you have to be able to adapt and grow with it. Yeah. For me, it's been a little unsettling of just how fragile so many of our systems are. And, and also thinking about like, as a business leader, I had some, let's call it naive uh, thought that, you know, I would be able to kind of see another financial disaster because, you know, in 08, in hindsight, we had a lot of warning or, you know, we'd kind of be able to gauge a little bit. And then this comes out of completely nowhere. And it just is a great humbling reminder that the next thing we're never going to be able to prepare for. And that we do need that mindset of being able to be nimble and change and, and to really think through our assumptions in our strategy. And one of the things that I really liked about our team and, and everyone that is in our workspace is everybody, um, and this might be the entrepreneurial spirit, has really been able to, okay, we just got a really big curveball. So let's get creative. Let's um, be flexible. And, and people like you and, and Strava have been really helpful and instrumental in, in changing some of the strategy, but then putting it to work. So it's been, it's been really great to be a part of. But my last question, then I'll turn it over to Kyle, is what is one thing that people are just very surprised about you to learn that they wouldn't automatically know? Hmm. Good question. I think for the standpoint is that I'm very serious when you meet me for the first time. People that get to know me after a while, like they get to know that I'm not that serious in certain cases. So I can be, people have said before that I can be very intimidating up front or like a lot of people can't go back and read, you know, what I'm thinking because I have a very stoic look about myself, but I have a fun side under, underneath that um, only comes out to certain people. Al's a world, world-class chop buster when it comes to fantasy football, among other things. <laughs> I would say your kickball team has probably seen that side of you and uh, you have a great sense of humor. Let me follow that, those two questions uh, with similar type questions. And the, the first, going back to COVID, is there one thing, anything that you've taken out of this pandemic that's still happening that you see as a positive I think that I think the big thing with this whole COVID piece is that it's it, it's really kind of understanding the um, the risk that we take every day, and you know that that we live in the greatest age in the history of mankind, and one of the things that we don't have to deal with is a lot of things that people came before us as a historian that people had to deal with, and so right now we we've been throwing a curveball, and one of the great things is that. In either, you know, a year or 18 months, we'll figure it out. And so I think we just have to kind of ride it out. And, you know, as a society, we, we just have to be able to stay confident to what we know and the systems that have been built before. 
and that through modern science and the, and the, and the amount of people that we have out there that we'll be able to kind of figure this out. It is an amazing place to be, to sit there and have confidence in that as a business person, as a human being on earth right now that we don't know, is it six months, is it 12, 18, whatever, but it's, you know, we have confidence in whether it's the entrepreneurial spirit or uh, the scientists that are out there, what we have come from and that foundation and what we will figure out in the future. It is an amazing time. And the big thing is that you look at the amount of like the death rates, that the death rate's gone down 90% since um since april and again that's because of the smart men and women that are going back and they're testing they're, they're using different pieces and it's and it's just that mentality of okay what's the situation what are we learning how do we change it what does it work and then how do we how do we communicate that to other people so non-covid related and uh similar to jen's type of question tell us your favorite book if it's not the same or if it is what would which book would you recommend the book that I've recently read, it's called The Power of Habits. It is wonderful. It goes back and it talks about habits, about how the brain works and about how you create habits in organizations, but also, you know, habits, you know, in culture. And it really goes back and it talks about how people function, how the brain functions. And there's another book, I forget what it is now, where, you know, one of the things that said, it's not you, it's your brain. And I think it really kind of helps you understand, you know, people, and but also understands the habits of the organization about how you build those things in. As a history buff, I just, um, I'll, I'll just put one plug. This is one of the more recent ones I read, I read was, the, was called The Age of Federalism. You know, that'll be one thing to be able to read at night, but it was about the 17, uh, the 1790s and politics then. And, you know, you think about all the, um, and you think about today, you think about, oh, if people were smart, well, you probably had like the smartest people ever getting together um, to form uh, the U.S. government. Within about three years, they all hated each other because they had different because they had different viewpoints. And I like the one thing that taught me was, was that people have different views of the world and that in business, you're going to have people that are going to have different views of the world. And, you know, you go back and you think about George Washington. He had Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson who hated each other working for him. But the one thing they agreed upon was that he had to be president because he was the one that's going to keep him keep him away. But business is that you have to go back and really understand if you have um, people with those divergent views about how they see the world, because Hamilton and Jefferson saw the world completely differently and they had different ends. And at a certain point, somebody has to win that debate. Back to your saying early in the conversation about how do you make that call. Well, at a certain point, you got to make the call and then you have a choice of the person who's on the losing side is either to buy into it or resign. And I think that, you know, the one thing as I went through and I read about that and I thought about businesses is that when you have strong personalities, because two, it's like back to the Coke and Pepsi, you know, is it about you or is it about the business? And people that are all about me, me, me all the time don't really fit well into the modern world. And that's where you really got to have that collaborative approach. And, you know, sadly... Jefferson and Hamilton didn't get along too well. and But in our businesses, we have to go back and forge that culture to be able to do that. And that's really, you know, getting the right people in the right position, following the right processes to get the ultimate performance that you're looking for. Well, thank you for reiterating your four Ps, uh, bookending it with that. Um, Al, can you please let anyone listening know how to find you online? Anything, last things you'd like to share? Well, one thing right now is that I am redoing my website. Um, so that's not up right now, but it'll, it'll be up sometime in the, hopefully in the fall is my goal. Um, but you can re- reach me at, at LinkedIn at, at Al Loveland 
or you can send me an email at al at strawboco.com. Thank you. So thank you, Al Loveland, for being on the show today. What a great conversation. And until next time, we're off to continue building better communities where purpose and profit unite. And thank you for being an awesome part of our community. Pleasure. Thank you.